Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A this Anzac Day. I'm Jessica Much Mackay. Radical reforms in health, but will ditching the DHBs really equal better outcomes? Plus, while remembering the past, we look to the future and ask our Defence Minister where his priorities lie. And our Foreign Minister defends her contentious speech on China. Do you feel like you should have framed it in a different way? No, I, th I said exactly what I meant in terms of the Five Eyes Alliance being a security and intelligence framework. So some interesting insights from the Minister later. First up though, we're talking health and this week's radical reforms. The 20 district health boards are set to be replaced by one central agency called Health NZ with four regional divisions. There'll also be a new Māori Health Authority. It's big and bold, bolder than what was recommended. And here to talk us through is Health Minister Andrew Little. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Morena. I want to start off by asking you, are you effectively making these big structural changes for a problem that can effectively be sold, solved with money? Uh, no, th there's a system problem, and that is that the way the system is set up, it is not delivering the best health care um, that is needed for New Zealand. So a whole lot of bureaucratic barriers between 20 DHBs, which has led to this huge inconsistency of care, delays in diagnosis, delays in treatment. Um, that is a structural problem that we have to address. Then on top of that, you've got huge inequity. You've got Māori, um, kapapa Māori services who are doing a great job but live on the smell of an oily rag. Um, and, and who know how to deal with the problems um, with their people, but a system that is not giving them or empowering them to actually make the change and make the difference that they need to make for their part of the system. So why not just have fewer DHBs? Um, well, fewer DHBs still leaves the problem that you've got to mediate a whole bunch of uh, problems and, and issues between different DHBs. One system, one structure, one apex to the decision making, a consistent set of standards across the systems, system as a whole, that's what, what's going to be the answer to the problems that we've got. How will centralising the system specifically make healthcare better in New Zealand? Um, it means that we can, we can get some consistency of standards, of protocols, treatment protocols, um, right across the board. And it means that clinicians think... Why can't you just do that with DHBs, though? Well, you can't at the moment. So a clinician in a, in a hospital somewhere who knows that their patient is best treated in a different hospital with a level of specialisation doesn't have to go through a whole bureaucratic morass in order to get that, tran that, that patient transferred to the place where they get the best health care. They can make the look across the system and say, actually, you know what? There's capacity over there. That's where you're best served. We're going to send you up there. And we'll you know, send family and whanau along to provide support. That is a really difficult to do under the current system, which explains long waiting times, delays in treatment, delays in diagnosis, which means that there's a whole bunch of people who are suffering more, in fact dying earlier than they need to, because they can't get the treatment in a timely way. I want to pick up on that travel <coughs> comment, because how is it going to work? If you have to travel, probably to Auckland, to get care, what's that going to mean for your family and support system? Are you going to have to set up Ronald McDonald-like houses near all the hospitals. What, what are you thinking around that? Um, look, we, th there, is, there is travel at the moment, but it's inconsistent. And so, like, for example, somebody out of Hawke's Bay who might have to travel to Wellington for some cancer care. Um, I, I, you know, I've had the horror stories of people having their transport funded one way, 
but not back to, to home or, um, or out of Whanganui, uh, travelling down to Wellington and then being told you make your own way back. So you can actually get some consistency of policies and approaches and, and standards to allow that to happen. So with if people have to people travel, will, how will, where will they stay? Where will they stay in the hospitals? And doesn't that just shift the problem from being a postcode lottery now to being you'll have to pay yourself if you have to travel into Auckland or Wellington, for example? Oh, no, as I said, look, there, is, there, is, there are patient transfers at the moment. We, there's about $1.5 billion is exchanged between DHBs moving patients around. It is very bureaucratic. It causes delays. Um, and when they travel, of course, the accommodation arrangements are in place. What we want to do, what this system... So what are those do, accommodation arrangements? Um, look, I, I couldn't give you that detail, except that, that it happens at the moment. But the purpose of having one system is that you break down the bureaucracy that goes with making that decision about transferring a patient and the clinician can, can look around the system as a whole and say, yep, the best place for you to be is here and now we can make that arrangement and there's, there's no barriers to doing so. Because sitting at home, if I was thinking, look, I have to travel to Wellington or Auckland to have my treatment if I was living outside mm. of those areas, I would think, OK, well, where am I going to mm. stay? Where's my husband going to mm. stay? Where are your kids going to stay? Isn't that kind of a, a simple thing that you'd have to work out? Are you saying that the government will provide some form of accommodation for people if they have to travel out outside of their region to have treatment? Yeah, I'm not, look, um, that happens at the moment. Support is provided at the moment. The paediatric oncology is only ever done out of Starship. Kids have to go and get you know, serious um, treatment for cancers. They come to Auckland to do it. The support, the accommodation and support and so on is there. Th that, with all due respect, is not the issue. The issue is about the decision taken by clinicians on a whole heap of issues. You look at you know, orthopaedic surgery, um, where there's you know, a, a, this incredible disparity of waiting times across the network at the moment. We can chunk that down, make it consistent, and if we have to move people around, move them around, the support will be there. But it's about getting treatment in a more timely way than is happening for many people at the moment. So you will get better treatment under this Health NZ system? Yes, this is about, um, this is about getting consistency across the, the, um, the country as a whole. You should not have to wait six times longer in some hospitals to get your, your orthopaedic surgery than you are in others. Um, we start to break that stuff down. Traditionally, if you centralise a system, it becomes slow and clunky. Would you agree with that and how will this be different? Um, no, I think, look, e everywhere I get around, and particularly with the clinicians, and I've done a, uh, a heap of consultation just this year, everybody is saying the system has to change. Everybody is saying the system at the moment is clunky and gets in the way of good treatment and good diagnosis for patients. We break down the, the kind of bureaucratic hurdles then and get good decision-making, good protocols in place. Um, we will get more timely responses to people. The other thing is, too, you know, we talk a lot about um, boosting primary and community health care. It's been the dream of successive governments for, for a long time. Shifting decision-making away from a hospital setting when it comes to commissioning services so that the people making those decisions can really focus on what is needed for primary community health care means that we can take some services that are currently done in hospitals and push them out into community settings. So you that's more accessible. You mentioned there that everyone's saying the system needs to change, but in mm. that Simpson report, the recommendation was just having fewer DHBs. So why did you feel like you needed to decide that the whole system needed to change? Because when I looked at it, the, arg the argument for reducing the number of DHBs was the same argument as for, for getting rid of them altogether. And that's about you know, breaking down those um, bureaucratic sort of barriers to, to good decision making, uh, particularly good clinical decision making. 
Um, and when you look at it, you know, we're a country of five million people, we're building a system for you know, five to six million people, you don't need 20 different sets of decision makers making good decisions about our health system. You're now moving to a, a more NHS type system that they use in the UK. But in the UK, they're looking for a more to, towards a more DHB-like system. Wouldn't it be better just to pump more money into the DHB system that we have at the moment rather than, than throw the baby out with the bathwater effectively? Um, look, funding is one issue, and, and that's a ne next big issue that we have to deal with. But I know, look, as Minister at the moment, my big, um, was well, not, not just a fear, it's a reality. If I tip money in at the top, I have no idea about whether it's going to get to where I expect it to go as Minister, that the system simply does not allow it. And we've had year after year, decade after decade, of the trade-off between primary and community health care, which arguably is the most important, it's the front door to the health system for most people, and hospitals. Our system privileges hospitals. We put a heap of money into hospitals and we're struggling uh, to get that very basic care at the front line for communities. So um, I, I, in a country our size, I don't think we need uh, the complexity that we've got at the moment and, right. and we can do better in breaking that down. This review was a health and disability review, but there hasn't been a lot of emphasis on the disability mm. side of things. Why haven't you addressed this, this big problem and big issue for New Zealand? Oh, we have actually, and we've acknowledged that the, the HDSR review didn't, um, didn't um, talk a lot about uh, disability, particularly disability support services. And it's for that reason, that, in, in response to that, um, and the representations from the disability community, disabled community, that uh, Carmel Cipollone and I have commissioned a separate piece of work looking at the governance of disability. Why was there not enough information in the Simpson report? Yeah, and I think just we, the, the work hadn't been done on uh, the disabled community. Say to us, we are. You know, our issues are not just health issues, they are other social support issues. And yet we are constantly having to sort of go between this government department and that government department, and everything siloed. We want something that is streamlined, consistent, coherent. And we agree with that. But the work hadn't been done on what it would take to pull that together. But there's not a shortage of information out there, and I know there's one of the panel members sitting on the other side of the studio mm. who'll be really interested in these answers. Mm. It's not like there's a shortage of information out there at the moment about what the disability sector needs. Why did you feel like you needed to delay addressing this? It's not about... We do... I think we know what the disability sector needs. They, um, they've articulated that very well. I think it's about, on the government side, working up what is... What does the machinery look like to make that actually work? We've got, with the new um, Public Services Act, we've got the ability to do things that we hadn't done before in terms of getting cross-government, um, uh, not, not collaboration, but, but, but a greater coherence between that um, and decisions about how funding works so that it's easier to get access to it and easier to make decisions that are more coherent than is the case at the moment. With the Māori Health Authority, will the power and the funding that they get match the size of the problem? Uh, well, we want the Māori Health Authority, A, it, no, it, it's going to be independent, it will have its own funds, um, and it's got to drive uh, uh, way better outcomes for Māori so Health. So on that, in terms of, of funding, because Māori make up 15% of the population but use 25% of health care, will mm. they get 25% of the funding designated to the Māori Health Authority? Well, I can't say that, and, and uh, that, that is a very crude approach, bearing in mind that a lot of the health services provided to Māori come through the non kaupapa Māori Health Services. So that's about the Māori Health Authority having a say in the whole of the health system, not just those things about kaupapa Māori Health Services. So that's why we, the way we've set it up is there are... Um, agreement has to be reached, for example, on a New Zealand health plan. Agreement has 
to be reached with Māori on what happens at that locality level. Plans won't be signed off and commissioned unless we have agreement with Māori on that. So Some, why so, have so, that separate authority then? Because aren't you effectively creating even the perception of a two-tier system, which you've been criticised for by the likes of the National Party? No, well this is about, because we want to draw on Mātauranga Māori and, and health services, they've got that repository of knowledge and understanding, they've got their own services, they've got to provide leadership. In the end, this is a treaty response about partnership. This is a, this is a real step to say, we will have this independent body we will resource it, but we will build in a set of decision-making rights that you have to work in conjunction with the rest of the system in a, in a real partnership. It, it is about actually having partnership over decision-making about the important um, uh, set of services called health services. We will have to leave it there, but thank you very much for coming in this morning and explaining all of that. Health Minister Andrew Little. Next, our panel will respond to Andrew Little. Then later, Aussie politics has been rocked by sexual misconduct scandal. A former MP tells us what it's like on the inside. At the time, I just thought that's how the world was. And it wasn't until I left Parliament and saw that um, the rest of society had moved on um, and that the culture in Parliament was really outdated. Welcome back. We're going to bring in our panel now. Dr Huhana Hickey, disability rights lawyer, and Dr Mataire Harwood, a GP university lecturer and clinical researcher. Thank you both very much for being with me today. You, you were sitting here listening to the Minister's response. Huhana, I'll start with you first. Mm. What did you make of his explanation to these pretty radical reforms? He's spot on basically, and uh, I have to say I feel quite encouraged, um, but for me it's still the devil in the detail. It's who are they engaging with, and particularly in the disability sector, we are not getting good representation right now, so what we need to be asking is, are you dealing just with the DPOs, which are the disabled persons organisations, or are you engaging with all disabled? Um, and frankly, most disabled are not represented by the DPOs, so if they're only engaging with them, then we've got a whole pocket of people missing out in that predominantly Māori disabled, who are the most deprived, who are also the most, the highest group um, in the disability sector with their numbers. You were in the room when Andrew Little made the announcement. I think it's fair to say that many in the sector, he went further than we expected, myself included. What was the feeling like in the room? What was your read on it? Yeah, I think um, we were a little surprised Yet there was a sense of optimism. Mm. There was a sense that we are tired. Um, we've had COVID to deal with. We do have these bureaucratic layers to go through when trying to get the best care for our whanau. Um, and this was truly a big shake-up. And there were a lot of heads nodding in the in the the beehive that day. A sense of optimism. And um, I think. What was most interesting was that everybody put their hand up and said, I want to be part of this change. You're a GP. Will this make a difference? I think it will make a difference. I think, like he's talked about, um, having the focus in primary care and, and community services is going to make a huge change for us. Um, he's right. A lot of the funding that comes to DHBs goes straight into the hospital care and, and their ability to be innovative and to... Um, to deliver new and exciting things within the hospital has always been prioritised by the boards. We need to shift that thinking and I think this is the way to do it. I put this question to the Minister as well. Why not keep the DHB system 
and just pump a whole lot more money into it, maybe have fewer DHBs. What's your read on that? The DHBs are politically uh, appointed, so basically they go along party lines, not necessarily along the best experts to be sitting at the table. And so we've, we have very few disabled ever get onto those DHBs, so they don't represent us. We find. Uh, why I, is that? Is it just the uh, the voting system, or it's the voting system? I, I was told by a few because I stood as an independent last time, and they said, "Oh no, I vote this party, I vote that party," and I'm like, "What about the best person?" They go, "Well, we don't know who they are," and people um, in in. South Auckland in particular, the demographic are not represented at the table very well at all, and particularly Māori, and this is a big problem for us. And we're finding, um, as, as I agree with Matiri, it all goes into tertiary level care. Primary level care is where we really can make change and save money and reduce the tertiary level need. But we're not investing in that level, and we have to. I'm on the Monaco Health Park Advisory Group, and what we're aiming for and pushing for is a community focus. Um, rebuild of the Monaco Superclinic. So that's an interesting point because mm. that's I, I think that's the big takeaway there. We're going to one big centralised system. How do you still have that community local voice? Because that's where you know the people that you're dealing with. They've got it. They have the DISAC um, group, which is the disability one at the DHBs, and they have uh, the Consumer Council. They have other advisory groups within. That's where the demographics are actually making changes because they come to them, they talk to them from a consumer's perspective and then it can go to the authority where they can actually pick that up. But again there has to be representation on that authority of medical personnel but also representation from the community. You're nodding along to that. Yeah, I just think the localities is actually a place for us to start. Too often any decision making, any prioritisation stops at the DHB and that community voice is not able to get in there. What he's suggesting now with localities is that you've got communities driving the priorities, mm. driving the service development within their um, particular area or their particular health need. That then is fed up into these regional authorities who then inform the centralised agencies, the Māori Health Authority and Health New Zealand, this is where you need to spend your money. So I think it is very much bottom up now. How does that Māori Health Authority sit with you, and I'll, I'll put this to you as well, Will it work? Is it creating the, a, a two-tier system or the perception of a two-tier system? I don't, certainly for Māori it's not created a, a, a two-tier system. We know the system at the moment isn't working for us, so something needed to change. Um, I think we need to make sure that it delivers on the things that it's set up to do though, and those things are, um, he talked about Mātauranga Māori, so Māori-led innovation. Um, at the moment we've got lots of pockets of things happening throughout the country. We've got Rongoa services mm. in the north through to Wakaama services in the south. How can we join those up? Because mm -hmm. perhaps an example is Fano Ora. You need to pump yep. in um, more power and more funding for a system like that to work. What needs to happen with this Māori authority to make it successful? Well, you've got iwi hapu Fano base, so that's great. However, Fano Hawa, uh, when you reach the age of 40, 68% of Māori have a disability. They're predominantly poverty and, and community health related. So if we deal with the primary level care and get that right, we will have less Māori acquiring disabilities at the age of 40 requiring tertiary level care. 
So we need to have our whānau hawa or our hawa onto the table in the health, Māori Health Authority, but it needs to be iwi hapu whānau led. So if that's the case, then for me, I know Koiora is a programme that Tainui have picked up and they're actually leading the way in trying to take charge of healthcare. People moan at us for not, you know, we're the poor ones, why are you always poor, why are you always failing? Well, here's an opportunity mm. to say we have the knowledge, we have the skills. For me personally, I hate having to take drugs as the answer to my disability mm. needs. I would love to be able to access Rungoa Māori. I would like meri meri romi romi based at the hospital. I would like to be able to go in and say, I've got a bit of a dicky knee. I don't want that the steroid creams. I would like a balm, kawa kawa please. And to be able to access that, work with my doctors with contemporary and traditional health So care. what's stopping you being able to do that right now? Cost. And the reality is, the cost and the um, the fact that we don't have... I know Rotorua has our Rungwa Centre based with their hospital and it works really well. We don't have that across the board. Now, you imagine if we had at every hospital-based system that there's a Rungwa Māori Centre or a holistic centre so that other ethnicities can bring their own traditional medicines, working alongside contemporary doctors, you then have Western and non-Western medicine working together in the best interests of the client because Every human being is different. No two disabilities are alike, no two diseases are alike. Everyone responds differently. We should be able to have access to that variation. I, I'll give you a statistic that I'm sure you're very aware of, but for our viewers at home, Māori are one, point, one and a half times more likely to die from cancer than yes. non-Māori. Mm. How, looking at this system, and I know this is a, a very broad question, but how will this improve statistics like that by changing the system? I think it'll provide consistency of care, like he's talked about. There are pockets of excellent care um, across Aotearoa. We need to make sure that those are scaled across the whole system and not just happening for some whānau, so that will be one. Two will be having really good data and the intelligence um, available to clinicians and the governors to decide where they need to um, fund services and provide that, that care that's needed to achieve equity. Um, and I think thirdly is commissioning, is that, you know, that's a way of us as clinicians being accountable across the system. I think those are key. Well, look, I want to say thank you both very much for your time this morning. Thank you for coming in and listening to the Minister and responding with both of you with your areas of expertise. So thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Up next, we will talk foreign policy and the balancing act between China and our traditional partners. We want to uphold international rules and norms and the institutions that are help, helping to actually ensure that that can be achieved. We want to ensure that we have broad relationships and that's really what I'm focused on at the moment. Welcome back. Our relationship with China is vital economically, but it can be difficult to maintain that while expressing our concerns about human rights and security issues. Nanaya Mahuta made headlines this week as she laid out a new stance, referring to the relationship between the dragon and the Tanifa. I sat down with the minister on Friday and started asking her why she's uncomfortable expanding the remit for the Five Eyes relationship. 
Well, before I gave, made those comments, I certainly gave a context for which the New Zealand-China relationship could uh, go forward, uh, given that uh, there were many things now, uh, given the shift in China's assertiveness in the region that made us very uncomfortable. The human rights area was the area that I amplified in the speech. And the context for the comments in relation to uh, the Five Eyes statement was that I didn't think that on every issue all the time you needed to invoke the Five Eyes framework, which is primarily a security and intelligence partnership. Because it is a security and intelligence partnership, why not expand <clears throat> the remit? Because don't we have a louder voice if we're joined with the US, the UK, Canada and Australia? And others across our region who actually stand for the same things, like an open democracy, making sure that there's a level of transparency that we're, co uh, we're confident in, but also so universal human rights upholding those. So my proposition was that it's important to ensure now more than ever before, if we believe in multilateralism, that we need to build a broad consensus of support for issues such as the, the upholding of human rights uh, issues in our region. Because the point of the speech was supposed to send a message to China that we plan to stand up to you and raise concerns with you when necessary. And it really became all about the comments about Five Eyes, with some international commentators even saying that you were trying to move away from that Five Eyes relationship. What went wrong? Nothing went wrong. The speech did what it was intended to do. And I think people who have read the speech have really reflected on how New Zealand is repositioning its relationship with China. Do you th were you surprised at how many people, especially those international commentators, how much they read into those Five Eyes comments. Do you, do you feel like you should have framed it in a different way? No, I, I said exactly what I meant in terms of the Five Eyes Alliance being a security and intelligence framework, and that it's really important that if we're going to stand up for universal human rights within our region, we look to build a broader consensus of support. And on that issue, other countries have accused China of genocide when it comes to the Uyghurs. Why hasn't New Zealand joined in that and added our voice to that when we have said we do want to assert ourselves? ourselves against China? Look, there's a very high threshold in terms of the use of the word genocide, and while uh, it can be applied to a number of things that have happened over a period of time, actually New Zealand has recognised the Holocaust in that manner with the use of genocide as a term. Uh, but, but, but I say we are really are wanting to ensure that if we're going to act and use certain terminology, that it is supported by a framing that is endorsed um, by the United Nations. What doesn't meet the threshold for you? No, I don't think it's what doesn't meet the threshold. The thing is, is what can we do to highlight that significant impacts are happening in places like Xinjiang, in places like Hong Kong? How do we build a broad consensus of support to call China uh, to action to be able to address those particular issues? How difficult is it to balance on that tightrope between China and our traditional partners? Yeah, that's a really good question because there are increasing complexities uh, at, within the geopolitical space, uh, the growing assertiveness uh, of China, yes, but also in a COVID context, the way in which there's um, greater protectionism uh, occurring. And we want to lean in to our primary position, which is New Zealand has an independent foreign policy. We are concerned about regional stability. We want to uphold international rules and norms 
schools and the institutions that are help, helping to actually ensure that that can be achieved. We want to ensure that we have broad relationships and that's really what I'm focused on at the moment. One of the other things that you talked about in this speech was sending a message to our exporters to diversify and not put all of their eggs in the China basket, if you like. Why did you give them that message? Is it because you're nervous about the unpredictability of China like we've seen with Australia? Well, we must look across Tasman and see uh, what has been happening to them and prepare ourselves in the event that with uh, the challenges of growing assertiveness of China, potentially the same things happening here, uh, to send a signal to exporters that they need to build resilience uh, into uh, the markets that they export to, but also into their business model. COVID has also had an impact as well because as uh, exporters are sending products overseas, it, they have to be more aware of the COVID environment. It was a pointed message, though. Why did you feel like you needed to deliver it at this time? It made sense to, and uh, as we see increasing focus on how New Zealand is positioning its relationship with its major trading partner, but also looking to broaden trade relationships elsewhere, the business community ultimately are impacted. So they need to know how we're... Uh, positioning and what the implications might be for them. And I mean, diversification has always been the message to exporters, but why now? Why now in this in this point in time, do they need to be more cautious of China? Well, there are a number of things happening. It's not just about China, it's about COVID as well. COVID has changed the way in which we think about supply chain security. COVID has changed the way in which we think about resilience within our region and how we might broaden our trading partners to buffer uh, some of the effects of those things that, have been, that are currently unprecedented, a global pandemic. So, you know, I just really want to put this into perspective. Partly it's about resilience in relation to be putting all our eggs in one basket with China and partly it's a result of what we've seen to be the impact of the COVID environment on our exporters. In that speech you also several times said that we have a quote-unquote maturing relationship with China. Diplomatically, what did you mean by that? Well, since the free trade agreement was reached in about 2008 with China, over time that relationship has taken uh, uh, prominence in terms of being our largest uh, two-way trading partner. And we've seen things shift in terms of China's growing assertiveness and increasing and escalating its presence in areas like what the South. What do you mean when you say growing assertiveness? Of, of, its, of its role and position within the region. And it's really important to you ensure... You mean the Pacific there? Within the Indo-Pacific region. Within the Indo-Pacific region. And it's really important that New Zealand uh, understands and, and observes that that is uh, a significant uh, uh, increasingly new um, presence. But also we're wanting to ensure that we treat all our partners well and broaden our opportunity uh, to export to a range of markets across the world. I also wanted to talk to you about Sahira Aden. Now, for people watching this at home, she was the New Zealand-born woman who moved to Australia when she was six, then went and joined ISIS, had two children, is now in a Turkish jail, and Australia effectively washed their hands and revoked her citizenship, making her squarely our problem. This became a diplomatic incident, obviously. What did you say to Maurice Payne, the Australian Foreign Minister, when she visited? 
What did you say to her behind closed doors about this issue? Well, prior to this, Australia has been well aware of New Zealand's position around our dissatisfaction with the revoking of citizenship. That was reinforced uh, in the face-to-face -face relationship. Uh, our, prime what, ministers, what our prime ministers agreed that we would work together towards uh, understanding the complexity of issues and working through what successful reintegration might look like. New Zealand certainly highlighted our concern for the care of the children who are innocent in all of this uh, and we're working through the complexity of those issues. How did you communicate your dissatisfaction? Well uh, principally around the issue of, of revoking citizenship because we needed to ensure uh, that, there, that New Zealand and Australia were working through again a range of complexities but ultimately what would successful reintegration look like because this is a challenge for both countries uh, and it certainly will be a challenge for New Zealand now that we're uh, primarily figuring out uh, how, how we successfully reintegrate uh, aid, the Aiden family. When I put that question to Maurice Payne, she said she highlighted that the children were at the forefront of decision making. Do you think there's a possibility that Australia may take them back, may choose to change that decision to revoke citizenship? Look, I'm, I, I know from the conversations that we've had that Australia are well aware of the range of complexities. I can't say what Australia is going to do. But it's a possibility. You won't rule it out. They, I won't rule it out. The opportunity for us both to, to consider the range of complexities and what would support successful reintegration, but also taking into account the care of the children. Because successful reintegration, is, as you use that term, the children's family are in Australia, so wouldn't that make sense for the children to go there? This is an issue that we highlighted really early uh, when the Aiden case came to our attention, is that the, if we put the care of the children at the centre of the decision making in the first instance, you would want to ensure, as we do in New Zealand, uh, to try and locate the children where their centre of gravity is or where their whanau are residing, and most of the family, I understand, reside in Australia. Now, at the press conference, obviously, with two foreign ministers, the answers were very diplomatic, but what you're telling me is that Australia is considering having the children come back to Australia. That's definitely on the table. No, what I'm doing is reinforcing what we said at the press conference, which is we are both working together around the complexity of the issues and the things that we're considering is the care of the children, but also what successful reintegration looks like. I also want to ask you, Anzac Day, how would you describe our relationship with Australia at this point in history? Look, I think the fact that we've uh, now got the quarantine free travel bubble uh, and that uh, two-way travel can reunite families, uh, that the Minister of Foreign Affairs made a decision on our invitation to come very early after the opening of quarantine-free travel signifies that we continue to have a close relationship and that relationship goes all the way back uh, to the period of time of soldiers standing side by side and serving in the world wars and that's endured to this day. They're our closest ally and partner. We agree on a lot of things, more than we disagree. One commentator that I spoke to talked about the irritations in the relationship, the 501s, the uh, labelling of the 501s as, as trash. Would you agree with that? There are some irritations in our relationship that you're trying to work through? Yes, but like family arrangements, you never agree with everybody all the time. And we have made our views known on the things that we disagree on very clearly and precisely at the time.
After the break, the dawn services have wrapped up, but community parades and Anzac events are still underway throughout the country. The Defence Minister will join us next from the Bay of Plenty. of a well-attended dawn parade in Wellington there. And being Anzac Day, it's a fitting time to talk to our Minister of Defence. Penny Hinare is at Fakatane's RSA this morning. Kia ora, Minister. Can you just tell me what's going on there right now? Uh, so we've, kia ora, and uh, thank you for having me. We've just had our uh, dawn service, um, so there's a little bit of a break before we head towards the civic service at 10am. Uh, it was well attended this morning, um, just from where I was seated, I, hundreds of people, uh, and so now we look towards a civic service and then of course sharing some time with our returned service people and, this afternoon. And what's the significance of the medals as well? Uh, so these medals belong to my grandfather, who was the final commander of the 28th Māori Battalion, and I wear them with pride and honour today. I want to talk to you about your role as, as Defence Minister. You have been criticised by Newsroom for being AWOL in your role as Defence, and it's fair to say you've been pretty quiet in this area. Is Defence just not as much of a priority under this government as it was under New Zealand First? Uh, no, uh, this is a priority portfolio for us and I'm honoured to be the Minister of Defence. We do have a number of challenges and projects in front of us that are important. And I say that because um, not since I think it's my former colleague, the Honourable Phil Goff, has Labour had a Minister of Defence. So now that we're government, uh, we've been working quite hard actually to work on our policy and strategic Just quietly uh, though. Well, I mean, you know, the work's got to be done in the engine room and that's where we're focused on at the moment to make sure that our policy and our strategic direction align with this government. I mean, when you think about under New Zealand First, though, they got our troops combat ready, they pumped in a lot of money, Orions, for example. So what are you doing in this space? Will you be moving back from that? Do you think we need to be combat ready? We must always be combat ready and it's come quite clear to me as I've gone around with... Uh, the different services, there are a number of challenges. Obviously, our Defence Force are currently engaged in OPROTECT, which is keeping our borders safe. However, we know that in order for us to be able to respond, we've got to be at a certain uh, operability, if you like, and readiness. And that is proving difficult and a challenge under OPROTECT. But the services assure me that, um, you know, our focus right now is the borders and we'll continue to be as ready as we can be. Why do we need to be combat ready? Well, it's important. So um, not, it isn't just combat in the traditional sense. The services, of course, uh, do a lot of work, uh, humanitarian. Uh, they've been in the Pacific recently supporting with a number of disasters uh, up in the Pacific. And it is important that we remain ready at any point in time, and that's across all of the services. So that's why we must make sure that we're able to maintain a core group who are able and ready to serve uh, when on notice. You talked about having challenges to that. Are, are we ready to go into combat if, if we were called upon? Are we poised and ready to go? 
my belief is we are. Um, I have talked about the challenges of OpProtect, where a large number of our service personnel are at the moment. But uh, in my time with the service chiefs, they have told me that they are ready. Uh, however, we I must acknowledge that it's it's isn't quite as clear cut as making a call and we're off to off to any theatre wherever that might be. In terms of of where we're going with that, I mean, next month Afghanistan we're pulling out of Afghanistan completely. Is this the end of us following our big partners into combat? No, I don't think it is. Um, we continue to train with them. We continue to have quite close relationships with them as a defence force. Uh, so I, I'm going to say no. It isn't an end to a traditional kind of alliance. But certainly as we look towards the future, and I know Minister Mahuta and the Prime Minister, uh, as we look towards the geopolitical space, my key role is to make sure that the defence force is ready. So if Joe Biden, for example, called on you for military support, what would you say? Look, I've been in touch with Secretary Austin, the Secretary of Defence from the United States, and we've had quite a good conversation about making sure we're able to support each other in a number of fields. Of course, we look towards the Pacific and recent conversations with them. Of course, we stand ready to support. Will the Defence Force get more money in next month's budget? Well, this is one of the challenges that you didn't touch on with respect to New Zealand First. We've faced a pandemic, and over the past year... COVID has been the key driver for this government and our, our job is to respond to that responsibly. Um, so as you look towards the budget, you'll have to wait for budget day. Oh, I just thought you might sneak that one in for me. I wanted to ask you a question that crosses over between uh, both of your portfolios. What happens if any Defence Force personnel refuse to take the vaccine? Uh, that's a good question. So um, just like it is for our frontline border workers, we need to make sure that, one, we offer the right information in order for them to make an informed decision. A large number and a huge percentage of the Defence Force have already accepted the vaccine. In fact, quite a large number have, have already received the second part of the vaccine. For those who have What's decided What's the latest to, on that? Do you have those numbers? Um, my, if I recall correctly, the numbers recently is close to 9,000, so about 8,500 of our uniformed personnel have been vaccinated. Uh, just over half of those have received their second vaccination now. But for those who choose not to, of course, they'll continue to work with the Defence Force as we look to where they might continue to play a role. Have you done any work around how many people have refused so far and what's happening to them? Are they going to back office jobs or how's that going to work? Um, so uh, in a recent visit to the Linton Army Camp, um, we've spoken to a large number of those who have already received. It's been identified to me that there are a number, uh, if I recall correctly, of just over 100 or so uh, who have chosen not to. Uh, we're going to continue to engage with them. I've offered, as I have done in Māori communities around the country, to actually sit down and uh, talk them through and answer their questions that they might have in the hope that they will receive the vaccine. If they choose not to, then the Defence Force will continue to work with them to see how they might play a role in the Defence Force, broadly speaking. So how would that work? They're just that, that group of 100, for example, if they still continue to refuse, they would just have to do jobs that didn't involve in any way the MIQ, or could they no longer be in the Defence Force? Well, they, wouldn't, they necessarily wouldn't play a role in the MIQ and OpProtect at the moment because that's the front line and that's where we need our people to have the best protection to, con 
to continue with that particular deployment and not protect. Um, whether or not they continue to serve in the Defence Force, that's not a decision for me. But like I've said, the um, uh, Defence Force will continue to work with them to see where they might have a role uh, in the future. The Māori Health Authority, earlier in the show I had Andrew Little, the Health Minister, on here. As Associate Minister, I want to get your opinion on this as well. How will you make sure that that Māori Health Authority has the power and has the funding it needs to make a difference to these very poor statistics when it comes to Māori? The first one is to make sure we have the legislation in place to allow, as we've said and Minister Little has agreed, that we allow Māori to actually design the space for themselves. What, made, what they made clear to us was they wanted authority, an independent authority. An independent authority isn't one that's prescribed by the government, so we've got to give them that space. Doesn't when that create two separate systems, though, when you talk about independent? Well, we've made it clear that the Māori Health Authority had to be independent. That was what the Waitangi Tribunal finding was, and we'll continue to support that ambition. But what we've also made clear is that that independent authority must continue to have levers and influence across the entire health sector. And with respect to your first question about resources, of course, it's all eyes on the budget, but I've made it clear to my colleagues that if we do want to turn the dial on poor Māori health statistics, we must invest there. So more oomph than Fano Ora. Yes, well, uh, you know, uh, as Minister for Fano Ora as well, Fano Ora's done well. But when we look at towards the health statistics, and they're quite clear, it is going to require significant resource. Well, Minister, thank you very much for your time today. We'll let you get back to the RSA. Thank you for being with us. After the break, sex, lies and question time, the insider account from a former Australian MP. When that national parliament itself has a culture of disrespect for women, then that's a problem that needs to be pointed out and needs to be acted upon. Welcome back to Q&A. Politics has had an, the image of a boys club for a long time and revelations of sexual misconduct within Australia's halls of power have sent shockwaves throughout the establishment. Shortly, we'll speak to a former MP about her experiences. But first, a quick look back at the scandals of recent months. Was raped inside Parliament House by a colleague. It sparked a national outcry. Brittany Higgins, a junior Liberal Party staffer, alleging she was raped in a ministerial office two years ago. By staying silent, I felt like it would have made me complicit. Prime Minister Scott Morrison apologised. Reports today are deeply distressing. Bart was criticised for referencing his own daughters in it. Jenny and I spoke last night. She said to me, you have to think about this as a father. It shouldn't take having children to have a conscience. Barely a fortnight later, and the Prime Minister made aware of the alleged rape of a 16-year-old in 1988 by a man now in his cabinet. Attorney General Christian Porter dramatically outing himself as a minister in question. I have been subject to the most wild, intense, unrestrained series of accusations. Mass demonstrations ensued at Parliament <laughs> and around the country. A Queensland MP also had to stand aside after complaints of harassment and taking an inappropriate photo of a woman's bottom in 2019. The ongoing scandal is clearly surprising Mr Morrison. I'm shocked and I'm disgusted. It is shameful. As a national reckoning on the treatment of women continues. 
And One News's Katie Bradford spoke to former federal MP Kate Ellis, whose books Sex, Lies and Question Time details her experiences. Katie started by asking her what drove her to put them into print. We've been having a, a revolution of sorts, focusing on gender equality and women's issues in our community. And I just became very much of the view that the national parliament needs to be the place that's leading for change. And when that national parliament itself has a culture of disrespect for women, then that's a problem that needs to be pointed out and needs to be acted upon. You described it as a revolution there. Others have called it a seismic shift. Is it that big, though? And, and is it something that's going to continue? Or have we seen a bit of a flash of attention on these issues and people will forget and move on? It's moved um, beyond a political debate. And this is a debate that's in the mainstream that people are talking about. Um, you know, the levels of sexual assault, the levels of domestic violence in our community and um, not talking about it as something to do with Parliament, but it's, it's much bigger than that. We've had some amazingly courageous young women stand up and tell their personal stories and I think we owe it to them to make sure that there is real and meaningful action now. You had a bit of a harrowing time, speaking of, of you know, women standing up and telling their stories. Was it hard for you to get that out there or did you weigh it up and decide it was important enough to tell that story? Um, it's funny because at the time I never really focused on, on it. At the time I just thought that's how the world was. And it wasn't until I left Parliament and saw that um, the rest of society had moved on um, and that the culture in Parliament was really outdated, that that's when I realised that I thought it was an important story to tell. And I think that the culture of our parliaments is incredibly important, not just for the women working within that building, but for the community more broadly. Um, we need to have the culture right so that they can prioritise when setting budgets, when deciding which programs to fund, um, you know, we should make sure that those values are reflective of the broader community. Is the federal parliament in Australia an unsafe place to work? Certainly not for members of parliament. I mean, what we have learned in recent weeks and months is how dangerous the power imbalance in that building can be for some of the more junior staff members and particularly female staff members. But, I mean, I think the reality is, is that when you look at the levels of violence against women, then, you know, it can be argued that Australia more broadly isn't a safe enough place for women wherever they be, whether that be in their own home or in the workplace. And it's something that we need to seriously tackle. Is that change happening fast enough um, within Parliament? Do you think the politicians there now are willing and able to accept that there's an issue and lead the way to make those changes? Um, I think that reluctantly there's been an acceptance. I think at first people thought that this would just go away, that it would all blow over. And I think people have recognised that there is something real in the community um, that isn't going to go away. Um, I think that the politicians have been a bit clueless about how to address that, um, I mean, how to tackle it and tackle it as a human issue and not a political issue. And when you've got a Prime Minister, uh, some of the comments uh, and behaviour from Scott Morrison, how much do you think his, I guess, initial refusal to accept some of this has made it more difficult? Or how would you characterise his handling of it? Well, I actually think that the reason that this flared up is because, you know, we had the shocking case of Brittany Higgins speaking out, um, alleging she was raped in a minister's office in Federal Parliament House. And 
that nobody told the Prime Minister about it, that um, she was put in a position where she felt she had to choose between her job or following up the crime that was committed to her. And I think the fact that the reason it resonated so much is because women across Australia, I think, looked at that and thought, well, if they don't care about it in the federal parliament, no wonder they don't care about what happened to me or what happened to my sister or what happened to my friend. And so it really struck um, a nerve with women and men across Australia. And for Australia to change and to have more representation in parliament and so forth, do you think it's changing fast enough? Do you think parliament is a better place for women right now? Um, I do. Um, so I saw a really big increase in the number of women um, in my party in Parliament during the 15 years that I was there, and I saw the culture change. Um, it can change, and it can change quickly. I, I'm an optimist. I know that you know there are businesses in the corporate sector um, across Australia and across the world who've had to modernise, and they've found ways to do that. And um, Parliament can find ways to do that too. Um, is it doing it fast enough? No, I don't think so. Um, but, you know, I'm really happy to join with the chorus of voices across the community calling for change and making sure that we don't let up until there is change. When you look at the experiences of you and obviously uh, some of the comments and behaviour towards Julia Gillard when she was Prime Minister, do you think it's going to take a long time before we see another female Prime Minister in Australia? Um, I certainly hope not. What I hope even more is that when we do get another female Prime Minister, it's better for them than it was for Julia. And I think that that's how this works, that um, it does get better and easier for the people that follow you. And we've learned a lot of lessons from the time when Julia was Prime Minister and the sort of sexism um, that she faced, I think right across the community, regardless of people's political persuasions, I think that there is an understanding that we don't want to see that sort of ugliness in Australia again and that we do need to do more to call it out and to stand up and to punish those who do behave so appallingly. So I hope we'll see one and I hope, um, you know, we can take a, take a note from New Zealand's lead once more um, that we see um, a successful female Prime Minister who's treated fairly by the community and by the Parliament. Would you recommend to young Australian women to become MPs to enter Parliament? Absolutely. Um, as, as I've said, I know without a shadow of a doubt that whatever I do with the rest of my life, it will never be as inspiring, as rewarding, as challenging as getting to be a Member of Parliament and indeed a Federal Minister. Um, it is an amazing opportunity if you're so inclined and um, there are lots of women around who will like to support the next generation come through and are always available for helpful hints and advice as well. You can find out more information about Miss Ellis's book on our Facebook page. Some really interesting stuff there. That's Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching and thanks to the Q&A team both here in the studio and in the control room. Hey, Teta Wiki, Jack will be back next Sunday at 9am for Q&As. Next, our future Tōtato Anamata special about teaching maths. Now, though, it's time for Marae. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.